0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Friday, January thirteenth, two thousand seventeen, from Slate. It's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The very first piece of news I saw today was the headline above the fold of the Wall Street Journal. In the first paragraph, said U.S. regulators accused Fiat, Chrysler Automobiles, and V of using software on its diesel-powered Jeep Cherokees and Ram pickups that allowed them to spew illegal amounts of pollution into the air, the latest broadside from the government over emission standards. Now, the headline of this article was EPA Raps Jeep Ram Maker on Emissions, which gave me an idea. Hit it! We're the EPA, and we're on a big mission to curb particulates from auto emissions. Now, Fiat and Chrysler weren't acting that nice. We discovered something called the defeater device. You may say a billion dollars in fine is a bit harsh. In fact, the CEO of Chrysler called it, quote, unadulterated hogwash. It's somewhat ironic, that's the phrase he would choose, because regulating hog waste is also in our purview. Break it down. Okay, don't break it down because I will acknowledge, it's not good. I was just considering doing the EPA wraps bit. Sometimes I get an idea and I quickly have to go on to a new idea. And I did. I wasn't going to do EPA wraps, but I did Google EPA wraps. And I found out that the actual EPA put out an actual rap, encouraging the little shorties to recycle to the extreme or something. Public transportation is the way to go. Well, it's one of the ways to keep emissions low. Now you can ride your bike Mm -hmm. instead of the car. If we save on fuel, then we'll all go far. I said click Popping all the crystal, winning all the awards, keeping strict compliance with the Copenhagen Accords. All right. In 2011, some conservative bloggers made fun of that song. They had just found it. But I found some evidence that this was on the EPA's site since 2008, which means it might have been a relic of the Bush administration. But let me say this. In a week, we will have a new administration. We'll have all new initiatives. And for the most part, it will be sad to see the old one go. But I cannot imagine the Trump administration allowing such nonsense. Now, maybe they'd have a country western song and some Rockettes choreography warning against sanctuary cities, but it will not be this bad.
0: You can click off the Game Boy, flip off the light while you're brushing your teeth.
1: Turn the handle to the right. On the show today, it's an Antan Twig, which means listener feedback, interaction. I give out Lobstar Awards. Let's rap, folks. Okay, let's not rap. And if you're a Slate Plus listener, we play a game of not only that, but also this with comedian Nick Thune. But joining me now to summarize some of the highlights of a week's worth of hearings on the Hill, it is Slate's Jamel Bowie. So this week was news palooza. So let's do an interview palooza with Jamel Bowie. He's the chief political correspondent for Slate. He's been watching hearings, taking notes, thinking about incoming administrations. Hello, Jamel. Hello. Let's go to the Jeff Sessions hearing first. Did you see the part? And we played this on the show where the CEO of the NAACP, Cornell Brooks, uh, sat and listened to. Lindsey Graham, read the report cards of all the Republicans and then all the Democrats that the NAACP gave out. Did you see that part?
0: I think I saw a a bit of it because I was running in and out of my office uh, doing a bunch of stuff. So I saw like the first full day of the Sessions hearings, but I read about it, certainly. Right. So this, to me,
1: is interesting because it gets – I was wondering why Sessions would think that that was an effective strategy. To show that the – to try to disqualify the NAACP as an arbiter of, say – um, civil rights, right, by saying that they give higher scores to Democrats than Republicans. I mean, by the way, maybe it's a totally ineffective strategy, but why do you think that Sessions would pursue
0: that line of logic? I think, I mean, I think the line of logic, right, is to say that this is just partisan score counting. Yeah. And what, what's interesting is that he's not wrong, but this reflects less poorly on the NAACP and civil rights organizations. And more poorly on sessions in the Republican Party, and I'll explain why. Over the last, I'd say, about 10 years, uh, these particular issues, civil rights issues, issues with direct racial impact, have become polarized along partisan lines. And so increasingly, if you are a Republican, you oppose efforts to expand uh, voting rights. You support uh, voter, voter – measures like voter ID – What you might call voter suppression measures, uh, not just ID, but sort of closing down precincts. And if you're a Democrat, you you support the kind of liberalization of all these laws. Republicans are much less likely, even with this kind of flourishing of criminal justice reform among some Republican governors and some lawmakers. Republicans are much less likely to support efforts to reform police departments. Democrats are, and so when you have this kind of partisan divide. In uh, in these issues, then, yes, in fact, an NAAC scorecard is going to look like a partisan scorecard because it's simply noting really that the Republican Party has turned sh- sharply on the right or sharply to the right on these issues. And I, I think that looks bad for the Republican Party, and, and I think it reflects the degree to which that party, with vanishingly few exceptions, uh no longer even even is attentive to the votes and perspectives of, of black Americans or for those Republicans who represent areas with modest black populations, their black constituents.
1: Yeah. And Cornell Brooks struggled to answer. He didn't struggle to answer. You could saw, see that there was a struggle playing out in his face, like, how far do I go? Um, he could have said, because uh, Graham asked, you know, are we racist? Could have just said, it's not a racism report card. It's a legislation report card. But If the parties have ideological differences, and each party will say proudly that they do, the NAACP is just pointing to one and saying, here's one. We're documenting it.
0: Sessions' response, response of the Republicans, does reflect the degree to which they know this is a real weakness. I don't think it's going to be a fatal weakness for Sessions, certainly. He looks to receive confirmation, but it's a real... It is a genuine fact that Jeff Sessions' career has been marked by the most charitable thing you could say is a disinterest in these issues. Um, I think there's substantial evidence to suggest that Jeff Sessions has been uh, an opponent of uh, what you might call a a modern-day civil rights agenda.
1: Yeah. And of all of uh, Trump's appointees, he definitely seems to be the one who can charitably be said to have the greatest disinterest in civil rights in a way that could do something about civil rights. And I wonder, I mean, I would assume that he was appointed to attorney general, not because Trump wanted some policy outcome, but because Jeff Sessions was an ally. Uh, Trump regards him as really competent. He uses like all of Jeff Jeff Sessions' uh, internal staff to write his speeches and to staff his communications arm. And he wants to reward Jeff Sessions, and that's the job Jeff Sessions wants. So it's possible. Like, what do you think? Do you think that Trump wants the Office of the Attorney General? to necessarily go in the Jeff Sessions way, or if there was, you know, if Sessions has a heart attack tomorrow, uh, maybe the next appointee will be a lot different, or at least a little different from the policies that Sessions would pursue.
0: You know, I think that's a really interesting question, because it's certainly the case that Trump is largely disinterested in all policy. Um, and this, you're right, that this Sessions' appointment uh, or nomination reflects the extent to which he has been a Trump loyalist from the beginning and is being rewarded. But it's also true that Trump's agenda was focused on what you would, what he described as law and order issues, restoring respect for police departments and immigration. And those are two issue areas where the Department of Justice has quite a bit of influence. And so I think that if Jeff Sessions were to, say, vanish tomorrow, a any subsequent nominee would be Sessions-like. I think what makes Sessions perhaps uniquely threatening to groups like the NAACP is that he does seem to have a grudge against them. Um, and he does seem to have a well-defined an ideological view of the role of the federal government in um, oversight when it comes to law enforcement uh, and other, uh, other areas of criminal justice reform. And his view essentially is that the, the federal government has no place Um, Today, a report came out about the Chicago Police Department showing a pattern of civil rights violations, of constitutional violations, of abuse. It is hard to overstate how important it is that the Obama, Holder, and Lynch uh, Department of Justice has essentially been here to provide kind of written and official documentation of these kinds of abuses, not just in Chicago, but in other cities across the country. And in the absence of that kind of oversight, it just doesn't exist. And so Sessions, as attorney general, uh, would likely lead the DOJ against doing those kinds of investigations and looking into those kinds of patterns of abuse. And I'm not sure if another nominee would, would, would be like that because that does seem to be a particular interest. Of Jeff Sessions. Yeah, I I take your point that Trump
1: campaigned on it and uh, Sessions is implementing his agendas strongly. Uh, stated, though there are counterexamples. Like, most of his military men and Pompeo disagree with what he has said about, you know, having good relations with the Russians. And mo- if you want to say, well, maybe that wasn't a core of his appeal, like, look at in Homeland Security. He seems to have big differences with his eventual boss if he gets nominated on deportations. That's true.
0: That's true. And I, I think, I mean, I think this, I'm not... So willing to say that Trump does not care about the promises he's made, although there are certain ones that obviously you could, you know, again, the most charitable thing you could say is that they weren't priorities. And yeah. so his rhetoric against Wall Street is reflect is not even reflected in the administration that's constituted, which is uh, kind of chock full of Wall Street and particularly Goldman Sachs alums. Uh, but I do think that sort of given given the kind of rhetoric Trump used, given the kinds of people who entered Trump's orbit. Um, that on issues of immigration and criminal justice, you someone like Sessions was inevitable. Mm-hmm. On the military stuff, I mean, Trump kind of trusts generals yeah. in, in that sort of shallow way. Um, it's said that his favorite movie is Patton, and you can kind of see that in this his his the fact that he surrounded himself with generals. And he likes them because they're generals, not necessarily because uh their policy views are the same. So there, you know, we have a situation where there might be some discrepancy with with what Trump talked about in the campaign, but when it comes to this other stuff, um, I think I think it sort of the kinds of people he's surrounded with has is mixing is mixed with his views to produce an outcome that I think is more or less in line with how he campaigned.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned that he doesn't seem that interested in policy. I guess the Ben Carson hearings really
0: underline that point. Yes, those were uh, astounding. I think on Twitter I called them low-key wild. Um,
1: <laughs> well, it's Ben Carson. <laughs>
0: right, right. That's it's Ben brand. Carson because it, it's very low-key. Uh, but so the, the, the first thing it, that's important to say is that housing and urban development is not some backwater agency. It is a cabinet level for a reason. Uh, it has a budget of $50 billion. It deals with all kinds of affordable development Uh, rental assistance, public housing. I mean, a a wide range of issues. Carson knows nothing about these. He has no experience with any of this. This isn't necessarily ideological. uh, It's not because he's conservative, because both the President George W. Bush's secretaries of housing and urban development had that kind of experience. Mel Martinez, for example, was the mayor of Orange County, Florida, which is a major metropolitan issue. It comes with kind of deep, practical knowledge of these issues. Carson, it's just, I mean, he's a brilliant neurosurgeon. I'm not going to deny him that. He has no experience here. And so it's actually very disturbing that he was nominated. It's more disturbing that the Republicans uh, in the Senate Banking, uh, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee don't seem terribly bothered by the fact that he has experience. He has no experience. And the Democrats, although they ask some pointed questions, seem resigned kind of to the fact that he has no experience. I think it's a recipe for an agency that will be. Uh, That may be quite dysfunctional over the next four years and that as someone who cares myself personally about these uh, housing issues, that's very disappointing. But I think Americans in general should be very disturbed that uh, someone who will be responsible, for example, for mortgage financing uh, in the country uh, knows almost nothing about it.
1: So let's move to Rex Tillerson, Foreign Relations Committee. Just one no vote by a Republican could sink that. And we saw Marco Rubio questioning him very strenuously. But my question is, do you see that more as political posturing by Rubio, uh, asking questions that have no great answer, that wouldn't have been answered in substance any differently by John Kerry or Hillary Clinton or do you see that as indicating that maybe Rubio really will be a, a no vote?
0: I don't know. I'll be honest. I actually do I'm not sure how that's going to work out uh, in part because, you know, Rubio has with Trump, for example, Rubio was very vociferous about his condemnation of Trump and turned around and voted for him. But I do think what Rubio revealed through his very tough questioning of Tillerson was just how much Tillerson is not prepared for doing a congressional hearing and not prepared in ways that suggests like some pretty disturbing blind spots. Right. So when asked if uh, Vladimir Putin had killed journalists, Tillerson was like, why, well, I, I don't know yet. I, I'll have to find that out. Um, and that's that's like very concerning for a secretary of state.
1: Right. When asked if if uh, Filipino President Duterte kills uh, people, he said, well, you know, we can't rely on what the media reports. And the obvious rebuttal is he says it himself over and over again. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> going into going into all these hearings, I actually thought Tillerson would be the smoothest one. Mm-hmm. But that that distinction seems to be going to Sessions. Tillerson looks like a genuine, you know. I wouldn't say disaster, but it doesn't look good.
1: So let me ask you this possibly impossible to answer parlor game. If you had one preemptory challenge on any of the cabinet appointees and they haven't all started their hearings, knowing that who they're replaced by might be worse, who would you uh, who would you toss out?
0: I toss out Jeff Sessions. I really would. Um, I, I, I do think I do think Jeff Sessions career and stated beliefs suggest a, a profound opposition to the mission of the civil rights department of the DOJ and, and critical aspects of the, GO, of the, of the DOJ otherwise. And I would, you know, I would use my shrek against him. Um, Carson disturbs me, but if he, at the very least, is just sort of like bumbling and isn't actively using the agency to undermine things, then, um, I can live with that. But I think Sessions is genuinely, uh, dangerous.
1: Yeah. And at first I was thinking mine would be Mnuchin just because the capacity for the treasury secretary to really wreck America is bigger than most other cabinet secretaries. But I think you're right. I mean, I think that the uh, I think that the Sessions appointee appointment is the worst. And whoever replaced him would almost have to be far better in this really important job. Right. Yeah. So glad we (laughs) agree. Jamel Bowie is chief political correspondent for Slate. Thanks so much, Jamel. Thank you. And now it's an Antan Twig, our name for a three week period where we collect all manner of feedback, be it from email. Gist at slate.com to Facebook, Facebook facebook.com forward slash slate gist to Twitter at slate gist or at Pesca M I or voicemail. Uh, We don't actually have budget for a voicemail service, so not that one. All right, then to parcel post. and We pour through it all, we subject it to our algorithm, we chew it over, and we really digest it. We let it pass through our small and large intestine, and then we serve it back to you in the hope that it will be some sort of intellectual fertilizer.
0: Mike, this is kind of disgusting. Just get onto the antan
1: twig. Yes, of course. Of course, you may have noticed that it was an antan twig, antan twig coming from the old English word for 21, an antan twig. We don't always do one every 21 days. You want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because the world is falling apart. And I need some of these Friday spiels to help you throughout your weekend. I give and give. Okay. I, on the other day, mused about all the kids' movies about following your dreams, which is pretty much all the kids' movies. And I got a surprising amount of pushback. Well, maybe some of it was specifically about my criticism of Zootopia. On Facebook, I got this response. It seems kind of silly to complain that foxes and weasels are criminals in Zootopia, given that one, Nick isn't a criminal. Well, he is when it starts. And two, the film is not all that subtle with the idea that society pushes people into a subset of roles based on their background that is difficult to break out of. That is actually so true. And thank you for that feedback, listener. Uh, let's see the name Alden Utter. Al- Al- Wait a minute. That's the humanized form of Emmett Otter, Alden Otter. We know what you're up to. Also providing feedbacks on the same spiel was a guy who goes by Cuck E. Cheese at My Dickerson. And he said, the reason animated movies are all about being whatever you want is that they're made by people who got their childhood dream. That is an interesting theory I'd never thought of. It's not true of the movies of Brad Bird, but it is true of almost all other animated movies. except. There are a few in a subset of movies I enjoy, kids' movies about following practical pursuits. There was uh, Outside In, A Journey into the World of Suppression, The Secret Strife of Pets, Some Few Panda, How to Train Your Dragon to Become an Actuary or Forensic Accountant, Mulan 2, where Mulan gradually accepts her place in the greater pursuit of harmonious society. And the sequel to Monsters, Inc. and Monsters University, Monsters Grad School, where Mike and Sully make do as non-union adjunct monsters in the inhumanities. Now, the other day I was talking about the idea that when you're lifting weights, no one ever advises you to do 14 reps. And that's my idea. I'm just going to become a lifestyle guru. I'll steal someone else's training manual and just tell them, yeah, but do it to 14 reps. But Brian Windmiller turned me on to these guys. The Hodge Twins, they do bodybuilding weightlifting routines with reps varying from 3 to 15. So I checked them out, and here is what I found.
0: Look at that. Look at that form. It's good, man. Look at that. Now respect it. Yeah.
1: Okay, let's skip to where they count out their reps.
0: Yeah, so we did three sets on the lower end of the rep scale, I might say. Five six reps. Five to six reps.
1: That's not 14, that's 5 to 6. How about
0: this part? So let me tell you what we did today. Yeah. Start off with five sets of 8 to 10 reps.
1: Sets of 8 to 10. Even the highly touted and very swole Hodge twins, I see no evidence that they do reps of 14. And now to my lobstar, which is just pretty much the listener who added the most to our life, to the life of the gist, and it was... Jen Clark, and this was when I was talking about voting rights, and she writes, Hi, Mike. I'm a voting rights and elections attorney at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. I know the Brennan Center for Justice. It sounds like you've been violating New York State's absentee ballot law. Ooh, this is not how you want to hear that. Special rules apply to New York City residents, and you must be absent on election day, not just from your county, but from all five boroughs altogether. And then she links to the Board of Elections website. So... My ploy of dropping my kids off in Manhattan and then voting in Brooklyn means that I have been violating New York election law. I do have to say that I did not actually violate elections law because I did a toe touch out of county. I should actually say that I actually have not violated election law. I may have led you to believe that, but I actually voted my affidavit in a place where I'm legally registered to vote. So it's all okay. But thank you for alerting me, Jennifer Clark, with however much subtlety that I was possibly on the hook for a quite lengthy jail term. That's why you get my vote for Lobstar of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary and Chris, who think prudent regulation keeps us from the abyss. The executive producer, it's Steve Lichtai, y'all. An ardent believer in the Kyoto Protocol. Andy Bowers, chief content guy for the Panoply Net. No chlorofluorocarbons, and he does so with no regret. That's the gist from Slate. It's not to everyone's taste. But neither is improperly disposed of industrial waste. Word to Rachel Carson. Oomperoo deprooduproo, and thanks for listening. Yeah! Back in the gym with TMW. Yeah!